I want you to take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 10. Uh, Now tonight we're going to take a break from the Living Bible series on how to study the Bible. And we're going to look at the conditions for maintaining revival. What are the conditions once emotions wane? We're about a month from uh, remove from refresh. How do we sustain and maintain a work of God? And what are the things that hinder that from happening? What are the things that make us go back into our old routines, our old way of life, our old way of thinking? How do we avoid those? Uh, that's what we're going to look at tonight. We've got about 30 people that we're going to present as new members of this fellowship tonight. So I, uh, I'm excited about, I'm so excited about tonight, I might preach both sermons this morning. I don't know. Somebody out there just said, I'm crying out to the Lord. Don't let him do that. I, I want you to look this morning at Luke 10, verse 25 through 37 as we continue the Speaking in Parables series on actions speak louder than words. This is one of the most familiar stories in all the Bible. There are people that have never read the Bible that are familiar with this story. It is an amazing story, one of the most dramatic and challenging stories. It's not just a nice story, it's a great story. Because it challenges us to think It challenges us uh, to think about our attitudes toward other people. It challenges us to think about our preconceived ideas, those statements we make like, well, that's just the way I was raised. I mean, you may have been raised to chew with your mouth open, but for the sake of the rest of us, don't do that. Well, that's just the way I am. This is a challenging parable that gives us insights into how God expects his children to act toward other people. Now, this has got every characteristic of a great story. It's got a great plot. It's got great characters. It's got action. It's got dialogue. And it's got a really good ending. So let's pick up in verse 25. Remember, the parable is always in the context of something that's going on. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Look at verse 29. But wishing to justify himself, in other words, the guy could quote the law, he didn't live the law. There are a lot of people that could quote what we're supposed to do that have no intention of doing it. And this guy is trying to justify himself. You could write by there where James talks about knowing what is right to do and not doing it is a sin. Faith and works. He said, who's my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, you can write here, 
see the hair on the back of the neck of this lawyer and the Pharisees standing up because he's about to make the Samaritan the hero of the story. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. So he paid his medical bills. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. So here's the lawyer's test and the response of Jesus. The Pharisees will never be known as a loving people. They were religious people. They were stiff. I mean, they had God in a box. They had God defined. They had God all figured out. I mean, the Pharisees could strut sitting down. Get that image in your mind for a minute. They looked down on people socially, racially, religiously, and economically. In other words, they thought they were better than everybody else. And yet, they were the teachers of the law. They were the professors of the ones who said, we can tell you how to know God. But they didn't know God because this man didn't even want to obey the two basic laws. Love God with everything you got and love your neighbor as yourself. They claim to be students of the scripture. Deuteronomy 6.5 said, love God. Leviticus 19.18 said, love your neighbor as yourself. This lawyer comes to Jesus and he asks him a question. And he wants to justify himself. Now there are various reasons why people ask questions. Some people ask questions because they're curious. Some people ask questions that they know the person can't answer because then they want to turn around and tell you how smart they are. But some people ask questions, and that's what this lawyer is doing here. He wants to embarrass Jesus. He wants to put this no-count carpenter from Nazareth to shame. So he comes, this expert in the law, and he listens to Jesus, and he challenges Jesus. Now, he's not just well-versed in the first five books of the law. Every Pharisee would have memorized much of the Psalms and all of the first five books. So he could start it in Genesis and quoted all of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Could have quoted it without stopping. But he was even more an expert in all the rules and regulations, the 600 plus rules that the Pharisees had added to the Bible Listen, you add anything to the Bible, you take away from it. You add anything to Jesus, you take away from Jesus. Jesus is all sufficient, the scriptures are all sufficient. And they had added all these rules and regulations. And so he throws a question out to Jesus, trying to justify himself. Now, this was a common practice among rabbis to start theological discussions in public places to gather a crowd so that one rabbi could try to prove that he was smarter than another rabbi or he had gained an insight that some rabbi had not had previously. 
By the way, just a thought. If it's new, it's not true. If you're the first person to think it up in the thousands of years of humanity, it's probably not true. And so they're arguing, and this is what one of the things they love to argue and debate about. Who's your neighbor? They love that. They love to get in this discussion. And this is why they love the discussion. They were always looking for loopholes. Always looking for ways to avoid doing what God's word said. Now the Greek here says he wanted to test him thoroughly, to embarrass him, to prove that he was not wise. But Jesus tested the lawyer. He turned the tables on him. By the way, this is one of the masterful methods of Jesus is that he would answer a question with another question. He wouldn't answer their question. He would ask a question. And so Jesus basically says to this lawyer, look, you of all people, a lawyer, a student of the law, you should know the answer to your own question. And so he says, well, let you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, if you keep the law as well as you quote it, you'll have eternal life. See, a lot of people can quote, but they just don't do. Uh, they can rattle off truth, but they just don't live it. The, the Jews had a limited definition of who their neighbor was. I can tell you who it wasn't. It wasn't prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors. They, they lived in an exclusive neighborhood of like-minded people. Everybody around them was just like them. Nobody ever challenged them. They would rebuke anybody that challenged them. They would look down on everybody else and consider themselves better than everybody else. They, they lived in one part of town. Everybody else lived in another part of town. There was actually an access into the Temple Mount from the rich part of Jerusalem to get in so they wouldn't have to go up through the southern steps with all the common people that had to go up to the Temple Mount. I mean, these people were elitist. They were arrogant. Donald Norby says, prejudice and selfishness could evade human responsibility all the while maintaining a religious facade. These people had a different religion than Jesus. Turn back, hold your place in chapter 10, turn back to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. This is one of the places that Jesus made them mad. He made them mad. He read the Bible and made them mad. He, in fact, told them who he was, that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. It made them mad. Now, all their lives, the ones before them and before them and before them and the ones there at the time of Christ, all their lives have been saying, we're looking for Messiah. And when Messiah showed up, they said, he doesn't look like we want him to look. He's not like we want him to be. Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book or the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now look at what Jesus said. Jesus says, this is what I'm about. You want to know what Jesus is about? This is what I'm about. This is who I am. This is what I do. 
because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now look at four categories. The poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. That's out of Isaiah. The Pharisees would have known Isaiah, and they said, that's not what we're going to do. We're not going to waste our time doing that. We're just going to have holy huddles and talk to each other and tell each other how wonderful we are and how God should love us because we're so great. You see, one of the things that eventually angered the people, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees about Jesus is that he hung around with people they thought didn't deserve to be hung around with. With sinners. People that lie, their lives were messed up. They didn't have it all figured out. God wasn't in a box. They didn't even know where God was. And on top of that, he talked about Samaritans. And he talked to Gentiles. They hated Gentiles because they were living under Gentile oppression, under Roman rule. I mean, they just hated the Gentiles. The Jews had forgotten that their purpose on earth was to be the light to the nations. The only time they turned on a light was in their closet. When they sat and just decided, what am I going to wear today? Well, how will I look good today? How can I put on my appearances today? And they would show up in the temple. And where God says he's watching the treasury, they would make sure they threw their coin into that treasury so it would circle around so everybody know that guy put in big money. And they wouldn't pray in private, but boy, they'd get in public, they'd raise their hands, and they'd pray out loud. God said, I don't hear that guy's prayer. I hear the prayer of the one that says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. God didn't hear one prayer that one Pharisee prayed on the day that he was crucified, but he heard the prayer of a thief. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today you will be with me in paradise. There's a lot of stuff going on in the name of God that God's not listening to. And he closed the book, verse 20, and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Boy, you want to talk about being out of the box and breaking out of the mold. He said, My good news is for anyone Everyone, anywhere, anytime, the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed, the ones that the Pharisees said, let's not touch them. The Pharisees would have never included a Samaritan in their definition of a neighbor. Warren Wiersbe said, for Jesus to tell a story that made the Jews look bad and the Samaritans look good would either be dangerous or self-defeating. Either way, the account is realistic. Now let's get to the setting of this parable. It's on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It goes down. It starts at about 2,900 feet above sea level and ends in Jericho at 700 feet below sea level. It's about 17 miles long. I, I went down this road in 1972 uh, with a very small tour group. And, and it is as dark and dangerous as you can imagine that it is. Uh, there, there's a little inn about halfway down. 
It's just big hills on the side. You're never supposed to go down that road at night. Never. Anybody in Israel would tell you, don't go down that road at night. I mean, it was dark as dangerous. So we stopped at this place, and there's this little, little one-room inn. And, and our tour guide told everybody on the tour what they wanted to hear. Oh, this is the inn where the Good Samaritan took the man. The inn was probably 200 years old. He only missed it by 1,800 years. It was just a mud hut. You, you have to be careful when somebody says X marks a spot when you know X doesn't mark the spot. I mean, we don't know where the upper room is. Some people think they know where everything is. We don't know where the upper room is. We know it was an upper room. We know it was in the, in the upper city. And I've taken groups, and at times we go to an upper room, but it is not the upper room because the artwork in it and the design of it goes back to about 12th century. They didn't have that at the time of Jesus. And so Jesus is talking about a very familiar place. By the way, we went... Uh, right after one of the wars between Israel and everybody else. And uh, so a friend of mine and I went over the hill just to see what was on the other side of the hill. And uh, we came back with a bazooka. But for some reason, they wouldn't let us put it on the plane and bring it home. Uh, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho is known as the robber's route. It is the most dangerous road in all of Israel. Josephus, the Jewish historian of the first century, said it was desolate and rocky. Jerome in the 4th century said it was infested with bandits and it was called the red or bloody way. You always go down from Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem. That's why the Psalms of Ascent are there. You always go down from Jerusalem to Jericho toward the Dead Sea. The road goes out of St. Stephen's Gate. It goes through the narrow valley of Jehoshaphat. It goes by Bethany, the town, the ruins of the town of, the, of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It follows a dry riverbed and it is barren and filled with people looking to take advantage of innocent people. Everybody listening would have known this road. And everybody listening would have known somebody that had either been beaten up on this road or robbed on this road. It was a familiar road in a familiar place. It was the main road from Jericho to Jerusalem and nobody, nobody would travel it at night. So the story, this man is beaten and he's robbed and he's left for dead. But this road was highly traveled because the priest and the Levites based out of Jericho. They couldn't afford to live in Jerusalem, so they based out of Jericho and went back and forth as their duties required them to go back and forth to Jerusalem for the times of sacrifice and festivals and other things. And so Jesus talks about these robbers and this man that's been robbed, and the lawyer says, who is my neighbor? <laughs> I love what Jesus does. Is Jesus reversed the question. The man says, who's my neighbor? Jesus says, whose neighbor are you? You see that all the Pharisees trying to figure out, who is it I have to love like myself? The question is, whose neighbor are you? Look at the characters in the parable. The man who was beaten and robbed. And now, this, this man was foolish because he was traveling alone. Now, now here's what we say before when we open our mouths and don't think. Well, 
Signs posted everywhere, dangerous road. Everybody knows don't travel this road alone. Everybody knows that you don't go down this road at night. God just got what he deserved. Serves him right. I mean, that's what the talk would have been at, over breakfast at the fast food restaurant the next morning. Hey, you hear about the guy got beat up? What a knucklehead. Anybody knows you don't go down that road at night. Nobody would have said, how is he? Nobody would have said, did he survive? It would have just been, he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. He got, what, he got what was coming to him. Nobody to blame but himself. So now this priest comes by, and he passes by on the other side of the road. Uh, Ian Walker said it's always easier on the other side of the road. He didn't want to take a risk of touching a dead. What if he's dead? Because if he's dead, then I can't do my service in the temple for seven days. I mean, i got to go back because dead is unclean. I can't touch an unclean body. And I, and I can't go do my job at the temple. And, and Jericho, this city of priests, he's traveling down this road and he's on his way. He's on his way to minister for God. Let me tell you what the problem with the priest is. Liturgy meant more to him than love. I mean, he's a priest. He may have been a preacher. You know, he, 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 he could have been on his way to preach a sermon on love is costly, let's love others. But he walked by somebody he should have loved, needed to love. You see, he knew how to prepare a sacrifice. He knew what the law required. He knew the rituals, but he never connected the dots. He never connected what happens in church is connected what happens outside of church. These are not two separate things. This is life. So let me ask you a question. Is it possible we have a lot of religion at church, but nothing for the roads we travel during the week? Is it possible? We have a lot of religion for church, but nothing for the roads we travel during the week. Does anybody that meets us on the road of life during the week have any idea, not just that we go to church, but that we are the church? You see, if you don't want to get on the road, then move to a monastery and become a monk. But that's not going to make you holy. Jesus was the holiest person that ever walked the face of the earth, and he rubbed shoulders with sinners which is what he's called us to do. Look at the Levite. Now the Levite served the priest. He might have gotten a little closer. But, you know, the robbers often would pretend, have somebody pretend to be beaten up, and then they would hide in the rocks and wait until somebody came to check on them, and then they would jump on them. They, they would fake a crisis. So this Levite thought, Safety first. I'm not going to take a risk. Now, I, I try to put myself in these stories and use my sanctified imagination. So with the priest, I think it's a preacher that's got to get to church on time and make sure that the doors are open, that there's toilet paper in the bathrooms, and that the, the temperature's set right and everything's good and perfect, and so he doesn't have time to care about anybody. Here's the, Le here's the Levite. Man, Look at that guy in that ditch. I tell you what, as soon as I can get to a phone, I'm going to call the church and tell them they need to send a staff member to help that guy. I'm not going to help him. 
I'm not going to do anything. That is what we pay the staff for, don't we? We pay the staff to help people, don't we? I mean, that's why I give a dollar a year whether I need to or not. You know, I got a friend that's in the hospital. I need to call the church and have the church. Well, are you? No, no, I don't have time to go, but I know that you'll send a staff member. That's what the Levite did. The Levite had this attitude. It's somebody else's responsibility, and the Levite is the person who always delegates up. Always delegates up. Listen, some of you in this church, you're always delegating up. Somebody says something to you in your connect group, and you say, I'm going to go find a staff member in charge of my connect group, and say, you need to do something about this. Rather than doing it yourself, you're the leader of the connect group. Do something. I mean, you, you are breathing. Do something. You see the need, meet it. Do something about it. So this, this Levite and the priest both knew the law. They just chose not to do anything about it. They knew and accepted the command to love God, but they rejected the command to love the neighbor. Here's the danger. It's the holier-than-thou syndrome. It's the holy huddle syndrome. It's the stay-away-from-sinners mentality, which is the opposite of what Jesus modeled. Now we come to the hero of the story, and I want to tell you, this made the Pharisees grind their teeth. I mean, when they dreamed about this at night, they were grinding their teeth. A Samaritan. I mean, just the thought. Just the thought. I mean, Samaritans were a mixed race. They called them dogs. The Jewish people called the Samaritans dogs. They'd do anything to avoid it. He stopped and he helped. He's the last one in the story. In fact, what the Jews would have assumed, what this lawyer would have assumed is, oh yeah, the Samaritan, I tell you what, he's going to go see if there's a dollar still left in his pocket because they're all jerks and you can't trust any of them and none of, none of them are the kind of people I want to hang around with and then if he's not dead, he'll probably just go ahead and kill him. That's the way they would have thought about the Samaritans. But the Samaritan stops and helps. Nobody expected it. He tends to the man's wounds, he leaves money to pay for his medical expenses, and Jesus gives us his story of comfort and compassion and ministry coming from the most unexpected source and character in this story. Now think about it. When this man regained his health, he owed it to a man that he wouldn't have stopped for. This Jew in the ditch owed his life to a Samaritan that he would have walked as far away from as he could have because he hated Samaritans. <laughs> Jesus says, I've got to go through Samaria. That's John chapter 4. Jesus didn't put any limits on who hears the gospel. Jesus didn't put any limits on who could be used by him. He, he, the Samaritan helps the guy in the ditch and he serves him right there. He saw a need and he paid it. Listen, I can look back on my life and see times when I've seen people in a ditch. Now, just don't look at me like you're really, you're really so much better. I can see times in my life when I've seen people that needed help and I've gone by on the other side of the road. I walked out of my way to make sure I didn't have to deal with that because I didn't want to get my hands dirty. Anybody else ever done that? It's not what Jesus would do. 
And when I do that, I'm not acting like Jesus. I'm acting for Michael's self-preservation. I'm not acting for the preservation of the gospel. But I can look back at my life too and I can find times when I was in a ditch and I didn't deserve anybody to come help me. And people did. All of us have been in these situations. All of us have had these moments in our lives. Don't miss this. A Samaritan helped a Jew. Jesus is showing us that sometimes the people we ignore, sometimes the people we think we are better than, sometimes the people we think don't love God as much as us or don't love God the right way or don't do things the way we think they ought to do them, that God uses them to show us what He's like. You see, the call to love and serve and give is not on the world, it's on the church. The world doesn't have to prove anything. We have to prove everything. We have to give evidence that Jesus has changed our life if we want the world to notice. If we don't give a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, who's going to do it? Theology leads to doxology, but doxology has to hit the street. And it has to be applied. Our Earl Allen said, when Cain asked, am I my brother's keeper? He was only justifying his murder. When you make excuses for not supporting the church, it is only to justify your behavior. Religion is a good subject for theoretical discussion. But when you get down to the application of the theory, it suddenly becomes a very personal subject, too personal for some. This neighborhood, my neighborhood, your neighborhood, my neighbors, your neighbors, this city, this county, this region needs a lot of good Samaritans because there are a whole lot of people in the ditch. And I want to tell you, you want to see God remove his presence from a church? Have the attitude, not my problem. That's somebody else's problem. You want to see God remove his blessing from your life? Ignore the poor, the oppressed, those that are in bondage, those that are hurting, and those that can't do anything to pay you back. You see, we, we live in a world where you do something for me, I'll do something for you. But what are we doing for the people that can't do anything for us? What are we doing for them? How are we caring for them? So there's three things that we need. First of all, we need compassion. The priest and Levite didn't have it. The Samaritan had it. We need compassion. Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful. Colossians 3, 12, put on compassion. The point is not who deserves it. The point is who needs it. The people that need compassion the most are the people that you may think don't deserve it. 
We need conduct that is befitting the gospel. Compassion led to action. He didn't just get emotionally involved. He got in the trenches. Luke chapter 6 and verse 31, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them, but love your enemies, do good. Our conduct, what we do when we leave here. Listen, when you pull off of Sherwood property, you enter the mission field. Our mission field is not just in Africa and Europe and in Asia. Our mission field is here. And it begins in Jerusalem and spreads out to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. We are to give of ourselves so that the gospel can go forth, so that people can be saved, so that lives can be changed. If you just love people who love you, you're not doing anything like Jesus. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've got people in my life that are hard to love. Some of them are my neighbors. Some of them are not. I've got people that are extra grace needed people. They need extra grace and I need extra grace to deal with them. But if I'm going to be the hands and feet of Jesus, then I've got to be available to him even when it's uncomfortable. Because it's always easier on the other side of the road. Always. Last thing. The circle of responsibility. The circle of responsibility. That circle is as big as the world in which you live. Now the Jews made it a very narrow circle. The Pharisees had a very narrow circle. Let, let me tell you how narrow this circle was for them. This is when you know you got religion and you don't have anything of God. You don't represent God the Father, you don't represent God the Son, and you don't represent God the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit would convict you that this is wrong. And God the Son would tell you you need to do something, and God the Father would say, that's the way my children are supposed to act. So here's the story, true story, true account of how the Pharisees operated and how they set up their rules. Let's say that if you were leaving the synagogue that day on the Sabbath, a wall fell, and you saw that somebody was under the wall. It would not be a breaking of the law for you to start digging the rocks out to see if the person was a Jew. But if you dug the rocks out and you saw the person was a Samaritan, you could just leave him there. If he was a Jew, keep digging and get him out and help him. If he's a Samaritan, just leave him there. He deserved the wall to fall on him. Got what he deserved. He's just a Samaritan. All right, you fill in the person. You fill in the race. You fill in the socioeconomic level. You fill in the neighborhood. You fill in the problem. Question is, are we willing to dig in the rubble to help somebody out of the rubble because that's what God would do? 
or when we look at them and say, well, they can't do anything for us, and I don't like people like that anyway, we just leave the rocks on them. In fact, we may just start throwing the rocks back. Look at how Jesus ends this. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said to him, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I want you to be honest with yourself now. We're not going to be here much longer. I want you to be honest with yourself. Who are you in this story? Are you the priest that doesn't want to get his hands dirty? Are you the Levite that wants somebody else to fix it because you don't want to do anything about it? Or are you the Samaritan? You're willing to give of yourself, of your substance, whatever you need to do to help somebody that's in trouble, to help somebody on the side of the road, to help somebody that's in the ditch. This man would have died if the Samaritan hadn't taken care of him. You know what the Samaritan could have said? Well, he's a Jew. He got what he deserved. Same thing the Jew would have said about a Samaritan. Got what he deserved. Jews never done anything to help me. I'm not going to do anything to help a Jew. That's not what he did. Because you see, folks, sin is a heart issue. It's a heart issue. And mercy is a heart issue. We either have it or we don't. So, on your road this week, whether it's school or work or home or neighborhood, or going to the mailbox and saying hello to the person that lives next door to you, or whatever it is, whoever it is, how are you going to be a good Samaritan this week? I want to tell you, if we left this place and intentionally, intentionally this week decided to do everything we could to be good Samaritans, to love people the way God loves them, it would change this community person by person, block by block, home by home, life by life. Because people are looking for somebody to love them and to care for them. They're not looking so much for a handout as a hand up to help them get up. Who's in our path this week? What will we do to be different, to make a difference? Father, forgive me for the times when I've not wanted to be inconvenienced. At the same time, Father, I thank you for the countless times that people in this church, through floods and tornadoes and storms and hurricanes and crisis and health issues and family issues, have reached out to people, some they never even knew before, and been the hands and feet of Jesus.
Lord, it is really true. This world doesn't care how much we know until they know how much we care. Lord, we know a lot. I pray that our caring would live up to our knowing. It's in Jesus' name. And the people of God said, Amen.